Well, hello, welcome to session two. My name is Joy Bannon, and I have the privilege of opening up the book of Hebrews with you this week. Um, now, just a little bit about myself. My family and I are part of a church plant. Um, we started about three years ago. We meet in Butler Township, Ohio, and God has blessed us with a local middle school that we are able to meet in. One of the hard parts of that is that we have to set up and tear down every single Sunday. So we've had three years of practice. We're getting pretty good. But in that first year, we were not very good at it yet. We didn't have a good rhythm. Um, people didn't have assignments yet. So there was one Sunday in particular that we just were behind. And we always stopped to circle up and pray. And we just couldn't. We had to power through. We still had chairs to set up. We had banners to hang up. We just, it was a mess. And so we powered through. We got those things done before the first people came in. And I tell you what. Everything that could go wrong that Sunday went wrong. The power shut off. The pastor's mic didn't work. The slide stopped. Like it was a hot mess. And our pastor always refers back to that Sunday as like, this is what happens when you don't invite God in. Well, so joining this teaching team was another unknown type of ministry call that I answered. And I, I know that the other women and I, there's been times that we've sat around this table and looked at each other like, what did we get ourselves into? And so we all had a little bit of anxiety, but we were excited to teach um, God's word. And so we didn't know what exactly was going to be asked of us. And at our very first meeting back in January, Jillian was like, I just want you guys to read Hebrews. Just soak in it, absorb it, meditate in it. And we we're like, oh, we can, read, we can read the Bible. I mean, we're all Bible nerds. We can, not a problem. Thought this was going to be scary. And so we get home. We do our assignment and we come back four weeks later and we were like, what was with all the angels? I mean, seriously, one teacher even said, I don't know if I can do this. I couldn't get past chapter one. And so then now with that in mind, fast forward a few months later down the road, we're starting to assign out passages and teaching assignments. And people are like, oh, I'll take session three or I'll take session five. And no one's signing up for this session, session two. And I still don't remember exactly how it all played out. I think the Holy Spirit protected me. Because next thing I know, my name is being written down next to session two. And Jillian was like, you got the angels. <laughs> Yay. So I'm sharing all this because I have learned my lesson. I'm not even going to attempt to speak to you any further until we pray and invite God into this place. So bow with me. Heavenly Father, God, we just... Thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for your love for us and that you want us to know you and you want us to read your word. God, I pray that you would help my words to be clear and I just pray that your word is glorified. We ask these things in your name. So before we go on, I want to read our key verses today. We're going to be studying Hebrews chapter 1. So I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And here is our key verse this week having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Part of our desire at Dayton Women in the Word is to show 
women that you don't have to have a degree in theology to be able to study and understand God's word. If you can make it through this first chapter of Hebrews, which you can, you can make it through any challenging section of the scripture. Remember, the scriptures are God's love letter to us. He didn't hide his word from us. He openly offers it to us. He wants us to read it. He wants us to know him better. So any thoughts of, I can't do this, or I don't know if I'm intellectual enough to understand this, those are lies from the enemy. He does not want you to open up God's word. He does not want you to try to get to know God better. But ladies, we've got this. The Holy Spirit is with you. We are here to help in any way that we can. So we are going to do this. All right? Take off your floaties, ladies. We're diving in the deep end. We're going to be peeling back these layers of Hebrews, and we're going to be studying this overall idea that Jesus is superior. Now, in the last video, Amber introduced to us the context of this book, the cultural context of what was happening and the audience and what they were going through. And I loved her quote that a text cannot mean what it never could have meant to its author. So we're going to look specifically at chapter one today and figure out what did the author intend, which was telling us that Jesus is better than spiritual beings. Jesus is better than angels. So as I was reading, there were two distinct sections. So I'm going to break those down for you today. The first part is verses one through four, where our author gives our main idea. And then our second section is verses five through 14, where our author builds a strong evidence case of contrasting Jesus and the angels. And what I hope to do today is to draw out, flesh out these verses some to explain to you why this message was so necessary to that original Hebrew audience but why it is still very relevant and necessary to us today. I don't know if you've had the privilege of getting to know very many people of the Jewish faith. They are so passionate about their history and their journey. Many Jews then and today grew up learning the chronicles of the Israelite journey. The Orthodox faith has such tremendously rich, deep roots. They were well-versed in their faith in the victories, those glory days, the amazing miracles that God performed on their behalf. They also know of the hard times, the exile, the injustices, the years of slavery and ransacking from enemy tribes. And for hundreds of years, just like a little kid says to a bully, you wait till my brother gets here. The Jews have been told by prophets that they have a Messiah coming who will avenge them. The Hebrew people had listened to these prophecies and these promises and clung to this, that they had someone who was coming to, to rescue them all throughout the highs and lows of their history. The problem is the Jewish people had a much different version in their mind of who was going to show up than who actually came on the scene. You see, they read prophecies like Micah 5.2 that says, But as for you, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. And they thought to themselves, a ruler? That's right, we're going to show them what a real leader looks like. They read Genesis 3.15 that prophesied, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And they were like, oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about, right? Isaiah 11.10, and that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. And they looked at each other like, it's about to go down. We're going to have a pep rally. Who doesn't love a good pep rally, right? And so for centuries, the Jewish people clung to these words and anticipated this warrior king who was going to come and make their enemies tremble in their sandals and just eviscerate all these pagan tribes. 
Now, in doing so, I don't know if the Hebrew people glossed over certain prophecies or maybe they kind of unintentionally twisted them to mean what they wanted to, because there are some prophecies that definitely describe a gentle Messiah. Like Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's the equivalent of us today saying, oh, he wouldn't hurt a fly. That's not a mighty warrior king. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. And that prophecy, Isaiah is giving them a heads up that this guy's not going to be well received. He's not the kind of guy that we have pep rallies around. Or what happened when they were growing up on these accounts of the Israelites who were saved from slavery? Like Exodus 12, 26 through 27, it says, And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Talking about the Passover ceremony. Then tell them, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. I really think the Hebrew people focused on the slaying of the Egyptians and not the gentle lamb whose blood was spilt to protect their households. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever expected one version of events, but God ordained a very different version to play out? Have you ever prayed for a very specific prayer request, only for God to answer in a, a different way? It's happened in our life. For about five years ago, we prayed regularly over my husband's job. He had been unhappy and unfulfilled for a while, and it was really taking a toll on him. And so at that time, we happened to have several connections with different positions on the Wright Pat Air Force Base. And so we thought that's where God was leading him. We thought that's a nice, secure job. They'll have good benefits. He would already know people that he would be working with. And so we felt pretty good about it. But then door after door kept getting shut in his face. And we didn't understand why that was happening. Like, God, why are you shutting these doors that you're leading us to? Well, a long story short, and a lot of faith later, about two years ago, my husband ended up going into his own business with a coworker of his who was actually down on his luck a bit at the time. And the pieces all just fell together seamlessly in this unexpected but beautiful way, the kind of way that only a miraculous sovereign God can work out. And I have watched my husband blossom and grow into the leader that I know he was created to be. And it has been amazing. But it is 100% not what we were expecting. This is not the answer that I was envisioning all those years that I was praying over my husband. Well, that's what happened with the Israelites. They were expecting this fierce warrior king and not this gentle Messiah. Because of these errant expectations, when this humble guy who was a teacher, who came from this very lowly and poor family, and the kind that could only afford to sacrifice pigeons, comes on the scene and says, I am he, I'm the Messiah. They got angry. Because not only that can't be it, that can't be him, but you've, you've offended our ancestors and all of our faith by insinuating that you could be him. And that's why this letter to the Hebrews was so important. The author wanted them to know, don't miss this. Jesus is it. He's him. Jesus is where it is at. He is the author of our salvation. He is our hope of eternal life. 
He is our only source of peace when we're going through trials and tribulations of life. Jesus is it. And so the author of Hebrews does this brilliant job of creating this persuasive letter where he sets up a very clear thesis and then he builds on it and giving evidence from texts that the Hebrews would have known and trusted. So I told you, we already took our floaties off. Get your goggles ready, lady. We're going to dive in. So the first section here, it introduces our main idea. So verses 1 through 3, our author is reviewing how God spoke to their ancestors through the different prophets in different ways. So verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The Hebrew audience would have been well familiar with this. They were well versed in the stories of God speaking to Moses through a burning bush, or Isaiah through visions, or God uh, working through Hosea through marital strife, or talking to Abraham face to face, and many others. Okay, but then verse chapter one, verse two, then says, "But in these last days." Now that phrase can get a little confusing, because this was written multiple centuries ago. So was that the last days? Is this the last days? Did we miss the last days? Well, so the last days describes this time period of everything after Jesus's death and resurrection. When he came to this earth, when he died, and when he was risen again, he changed everything. And every day from that moment of his resurrection is part of this time period that we call the last days. So verse two says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. So whom he, God, appointed the heir of all things. The Amplified Version says this, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things. So here the author is vouching for Jesus's authority. Why does this son, why does Jesus have this authority to talk to us for God? Because he, Jesus, has authority in the air over all things. And just in case that wasn't enough, the author gives us another qualifier, through whom he also created the world. Now, I love it when authors just slip in this little bit of like profound theology, like it's no big deal. You know, Jesus, you know, God's son, you know, you know him, the one who, um, through whom God created the entire world. What? What? Now, I grew up in church. I grew up on the creation account. So I remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing about a son in that. Well, whenever you come across a piece of scripture that seems to be conflicting or confusing, then what we do is we hold it up against the rest of scripture. So this verse just challenged everything I've been raised to believe on creation. So I put a bookmark here in Hebrews and I need to jump back to Genesis because I need to check this. So I'm going to go back to Genesis 1, the creation story. I'm going to look at verse 26. And sure enough, here it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Hmm. How many different times have we read this creation account and missed that little pronoun slip? How it just changed to plural pronouns, us, our. But okay, that makes sense. That does make sense because Genesis 1-2, it does tell us this. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I remember that. So yes, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. 
But Hebrews 1, 2 tells us that the son, Jesus, was at and part of creation as well. So here we are, ladies. We are two verses into this book, and we have already gotten into some deep theology. But it's all right. We're just like Dory in Finding Nemo. We're going to just keep swimming, and we've got a lot more to discover. So now outside of the movie Frozen or the series The Crown, I have never seen an actual coronation ceremony, but the Hebrew audience would have. They were familiar. They knew that there would be this big procession and that this person, this new king, would be seated on the throne and there would be a proclamation that this person now has all of the power in the kingdom. They would have been familiar with that. And so verse 3 is our snapshot into the coronation of Jesus in heaven. Now, I love how the Amplified Version takes the actual words of the translation and mixes it, combines it with the meaning of the phrases. It just draws out this beautiful picture. So in verse 3, here's what the Amplified Version says. The sun is the radiance and only expression of the glory of our awesome God, reflecting God's Shekinah glory, the light being the brilliant light of the divine and the exact representation and perfect imprint of his Father's essence, upholding and maintaining and propelling all things, the entire physical and spiritual universe, by his powerful word, carrying the universe along to its predetermined goal. When he himself and no other, had by offering himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, accomplished purification from sins and established our freedom from guilt, he sat down revealing his completed work at the right hand of the majesty on high, revealing his divine authority. The one who radiates the glory of our God on us, who upholds and maintains and propels everything into motion. When he, when that guy accomplished dying for our sins and resurrecting us to life to establish freedom from guilt. When he sat down at the right hand of God, that is the ultimate coronation of all coronations. So in three verses, our author has established that Jesus is God's son. Jesus is heir and lawful owner of all things. Jesus was present and a participant in creation. Jesus radiates God's glory. Jesus is an exact duplicate of God's essence. And as such, he holds and maintains and propels into motion all things of the physical and spiritual universe. Not only that, but Jesus is the purifier of our sins. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, demonstrating his divine authority over all the universe. And all of this is just our background information. Building up to our thesis, which as I told you is verse 4 having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, when I first read that, I was kind of like, okay, he's more excellent than angels. Done, not a problem. Well, let me tell you that I teach sixth grade, and in my classroom, you are not allowed to say, that's so easy, and here's why. I tell my students, just because something may have been easy for you it may have been really, really hard for your neighbor. And so when you shout out something like that, it can hurt their feelings and make them feel bad about themselves. And so while this felt like a no-duh statement to me, it may not be to other people. And it certainly wasn't to this original Hebrew audience 
or the author wouldn't have spent so much precious scroll space talking about it. So that means that I need to dig a little bit deeper. So I go to my trusty Google search, and I type in angel references in the New Testament. And I go to well-respected, reputable sources, such as BibleStudy.org, BibleStudyTools.com, Bible Gateway is another favorite. And I start searching through these scripture references. And in doing that, I came across Colossians 2.18. And it says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. What is asceticism? Like, I can't even say that without lisping, asceticism. So I looked up asceticism and ascetic practices, and it turns out that ascetic practices are very strict disciplines by a proclaimed follower of Christ. This community of people committed to live a life completely free of all physical pleasure. These people would take part in very lengthy fasts. They would abstain from sex. They'd abstain from any other earthly pleasure. And they believed in such an extreme form of humility that it actually kind of became arrogance. They lived this life of complete self-abasement. They inflicted self-pain on themselves out of the sense of humility, but they also thought of themselves as holier for it. And the people who followed this lifestyle believed that because of our abasement, because we were so lowly, that we were unworthy as humans to even worship God. We could only worship his angels. And in fact, we needed a mediator to mediate for us for the mediator he gave us of Jesus. The people who followed this lifestyle figured angels clearly have power and they're clearly closer to God than we are so they can communicate to God for us. And as I did a little bit more digging into the early church, this was actually a very common practice in the early church. The Jewish communities knew that angels were not of this world. They were spiritual beings. They had demonstrated a very unusual power and had clear knowledge. And so now I'm starting to understand that culture a little more, right? Of that original audience and why this was so necessary, why the author starts off talking about this. So now, starting in verse five through the rest of the chapter, our author is gonna build in this evidence where he's gonna be contrasting Jesus and the angels. When I was reading through these verses, in my mind, it was kind of like the author was creating a chart where he was giving a, a back and forth of, of Jesus is this, but angels are this, or God says X, Y, and Z about Jesus, but he never says X, Y, and Z about angels. So let's look at this to so you see what I'm talking about. So verse four, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, what name has he inherited? What are they talking about? Son. The name son is far more excellent than angel. So let's move to verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Jesus calls God his son. He has never said that about angels. He does not call angels his sons or daughters. That is what makes him stand apart. So let's move on to verse six. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. God calls the angels to worship Jesus. We don't see in scripture God calling Jesus to worship the angels. So now in my notes, I started making a T-chart. I'm a teacher, I enjoy charts. So as you begin to annotate, I find that making charts like this 
helps you organize and better grasp what the author is trying to communicate. And I'm a visual learner, so it helps me to keep this contrasting conversation clear in my head. So I made a T-chart in my notes, and I had Jesus on one side, and I had angels on the other. And I started jotting down key ideas from each verse. So, for example, under verse 5, under Jesus, I wrote, God called Jesus his son. And then under angels, I wrote, God does not call angels his son. Easy, right? Verse 6, I put, God tells the angels to worship Jesus, under Jesus. And then for the angels, I put, God does not tell Jesus to worship angels. So I'm starting to organize the author's message. Keep your chart handy. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 tells us, Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. So here, God is calling the angels his ministers or his servants. So in verse 6, God was calling the angels to worship Jesus, and now they're also being called Jesus or God's servants, his ministers. So under angels on my T-chart for verse 7, I'm going to make a note that says God calls angels his servant. God calls angels his servants. Now, do you remember how I told you this author was very smart for using Hebrew texts that the Hebrew audience would already know and trust? Well, here's how I came to that conclusion. As you're reading through the Bible, have you ever noticed that there's a section of verses that will be centered, or maybe they're in uh, print, or what are those called, quotation marks? Or if you're reading um, on, your, on your phone or tablet, and you'll see like a little square with three dots in it. Whenever you see those and you follow them, they take you to another section of scripture that will have the same or similar message. This is called a cross-reference. The Bible is full of them. Hebrews chapter 1 is chopped full of them. And these are so neat. They show us how this whole Bible is connected. New Testament, Old Testament, it's all together. Sometimes when we read scripture, it can feel like the Old Testament is completely separate from the New Testament. In fact, I've even heard people make the comment of like, oh, the Old Testament God or the New Testament God. No, my friends, it is the same God. He has the same message of hope, the same message of deliverance. It is the same God. Those prophecies that we read in the Old Testament, many of them were fulfilled in the New Testament. Some of them are still being fulfilled today. Some of them haven't come to fruition yet. Once you start following these cross-references, you see this interwoven link between these two worlds. And I've even found, the more I go into it, how much Jesus quoted the Old Testament, how many references he made back to the Old Testament. And so it just shows me that Jesus was there in the Old Testament. We just have to dig a little bit deeper and look a little bit harder, but he was there the whole time. He didn't just show up in the New Testament. He was always there. So back to Hebrews. Do you remember when I talked about they're well-versed in their Jewish faith and their religious history? So they knew about this prophesied Messiah. They also knew about the books of the Jewish faith, the Pentateuch, Psalms, Proverbs. They were well-versed in these. And so this author knew that and was using those texts to build his case. So when the original audience was reading this, they were reading quotes from their own text. 
And so he used this to build up his case to prove his thesis that Jesus is superior to angels. And so all these pieces of evidence came from their very own text. And I, I want to show you what I mean here. So look in verse 5. Hebrews verse 5. I have a cross-reference here that tells me to go to Psalm 2-7. So I'm going to put my little bookmark here in Hebrews. And I'm going to flip back to Psalm 2-7. And it tells me, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Isn't that pretty cool? It's like word for word what we just read in Hebrews. But I need a little more information because that's great and all, but I don't understand what we're talking about. So I look back in the text to find out, get a little more information on what, what's going on here. And I see that the translators titled this chapter, The Reign of the Lord's Anointed, Jesus. So that tells me that Jesus is anointed. That's what they're talking about. So now when you go back to Hebrews 1.5, and it says, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son. They're talking about Jesus. The audience got that. Now, there's even a second reference to 2 Samuel 7.14. And as a proclaimed Bible nerd, I just love this one. So, 2 Samuel 7.14, gotta find it here, says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is one of those amazing verses where it has one meaning in that moment. They were talking about King David. But there's also this future prophecy that is being spoken about Jesus in that moment. And this would have been an aha moment for that Hebrew audience. So, Scripture quoting scripture. I just love it. Just love it. Let's do one more. Just because we can. Verse 6. Hebrews 1 verse 6. Gives me a note that tells me to go to Deuteronomy 32.43. So I'm going to put my bookmark here. Keep my place in Hebrews. It's like old fashioned sword drills. And we're going to jump to Deuteronomy. 32 verse 43. And it says. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. Now, that means not very much to me. I need some context. I need to know what's going on, who's talking, why this is happening. So I'm going to go back through the scripture and try to figure out what's my context. And so when I do, I see that the very last verse of chapter 31 says, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. So that quote was from a song that Moses, their own hero of their faith, wrote worshiping God. So when they read that in Hebrews, that was significant to them. That had a special meaning to them. They knew where that was coming from. Okay, so let's go back to our chart. Cross-referencing is fun. I encourage you to spend some time in that this week. We're going to keep getting through chapter 1, though. Verse 8 says, But of the Son, he says, O God, your throne is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So under verse 8, under Jesus, I make a note that Jesus' throne is forever. Verse 9 says, And you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So under Jesus, I'm going to make a note, was anointed by God. No, it doesn't say anything about angels being anointed. So under angels for verse 9, I'm going to make a note 
angels are not called anointed in scripture. So verse eight, Jesus' throne is forever. Verse nine, Jesus was anointed by God. And under angels, angels are not called anointed. Verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So here the author is pointing out that Jesus was there at creation, and we knew that, but angels are created beings. And how I know that is that Colossians 1, 15 through 16, tells me that. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things, angels, us, animals, plant life, all were created, okay? Jesus was there. He was a participant at creation. Angels are created beings. Verse 11 talks about how Jesus remains the same in his character. He is holy. He is godly. He is perfect all the time. He never changes. He never wears out. Angels, on the other hand, very much can change in character. One obvious example is Satan. He was created an angel. He wasn't created evil, but he changed in his character and he sinned and was cast out from heaven. We hear about the angels in 2 Peter 2, 4 that were cast out by heaven. They weren't created fallen. They weren't created evil, but they changed in their character. So I'm going to add these parts to my T-chart. Under Jesus, I'm going to put Jesus was at creation. And under angels, I'm going to put angels are created. Under Jesus, I'm going to put Jesus remains the same in his character. And under angels, angels can change in character. Now, verse 13 refers back to Jesus on the throne like we saw in verse 3. It says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is another beautiful cross-reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. I hope you please go check that out. Once again, our author is hammering home that Jesus is seated on the throne, not angels. So on my T-chart, I make a note for verse 13. Jesus is seated at God's right hand. And under angels, angels are not seated on a throne. So Jesus is at God's right hand. Angels are not seated on a throne. And after all of this detailed evidence, the author wraps up his argument in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The New Living Translation says it like this. Therefore, angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. Jesus is superior because he is the son of God. Angels are servants. They are sent to serve those who inherit salvation. But do you realize who that is? Inheritors of salvation? That's believers. But now you might be asking yourself, how do I know if I'm an inheritor of salvation? What, what does that look like? Well, friend, let's talk about that. You know 
that we live in a broken and fallen world. The violence that we see in our schools, in our towns, wars that we see across the ocean, abuse, disease, death, there is no denying that we live in a broken world. This is not the perfect design that God had for humanity. This is not the perfect design that God had for you and for me. In Genesis 1-1, when God created the heavens and the earth, they were perfect. They were sinless. But in chapter 3, sin entered the world and it changed that. And ever since then, going forward, there has been this constant struggle and desire to return back to that perfect design that Jesus or that God had. And so we try to compensate for the sin and the brokenness in this world, either through working really hard, maybe alcohol, maybe relationships, maybe volunteer work, maybe extra charity. And each of these attempts are really just efforts to try to cover up the sin and brokenness that's inside of us. And in the end, they just show us how broken we really are and how we cannot do anything to help ourselves. Romans 3.23 tells us, all have sinned. God knew we could not save ourselves. So scripture tells us that he sent us his son, Jesus. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. God sent his son to this earth as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, yours and mine. God calls us to believe in Jesus' sacrifice and to come to him as we are. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Imagine I have a gift for you. I have gotten you this beautiful cashmere sweater. When does it become yours? Is it when I hand it to you? But what if you put it in the back seat of your car and just drive around town with it? Have you really accepted it? What if you take it out of your car and you put it in a cabinet in your house, but it's out of sight? Have you still really accepted it? Is it really yours? It's yours, I've given it to you, but you haven't accepted it. You have to accept God's free gift of salvation. You have to take it as your own. God offers it to each of us freely. Have you accepted it? Salvation is yours to have. You just have to believe it and receive it. God sent Jesus to die for us. He sent angels to care for us. They help defend us, they encourage us, and they communicate to us, but they are mere messengers. They are created beings. They are not all powerful, almighty, all knowing, only Jesus. Now you may think to yourself, this is that's a beautiful talk, Joy, really. That's great, but I don't struggle with worshiping angels. I've already accepted the gift of salvation. I think I'm good. Good for you, that is excellent. But before you get too arrogant, hold on a minute. Can you honestly say that Jesus is supreme over everything in your life? Do we have Jesus over our ambitions? Have we put Jesus over our to-do list? We love our to-do list women. Have we put Jesus over our children? Is five minutes of prayer and talking to God more important to us than five minutes of scrolling through Instagram and Pinterest? Now, not all of these things are bad. Children are a gift from God. They are the arrows in our quiver. Family is a wonderful gift from God that must be protected and cherished. But sometimes even these things take a place higher than where they should in our lives. And the author of Hebrews is reminding us and trying to convince us 
Guys, Jesus is better. Have we let anything come into our lives and take that place over Jesus? Ladies, if you hear anything today, I want you to hear this. Jesus is better than anything on earth. Everything in this earth will fade away. Jesus will last forever. He is better than anything you can possibly dream of. What are some areas that you might have let sneak out of place? So this week, as you're studying Hebrews and as you're going through and you're checking out these cross-references and you're finding this really neat web of the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I want you to remember that Jesus is better and take this as an opportunity to reflect on your own life and make sure that that is true for you as well.